0: Now, can I can encourage you to turn to the passage that we're reading, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 8. As in all uh, preaching, it's important that you sit with a Bible open in front of you, or it's not going to make a lot of sense. I want you to see that what's being said is actually coming from the text itself. So if you open your Bibles, please, uh, you'll get much more benefit, hopefully, <laughs> from. Uh, the word. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time And the just way, for there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavily on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of his death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man has power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, such a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own word. After the Second World War, when Winston Churchill was negotiating with Stalin over the future of Europe, he became increasingly frustrated with uh, communism, and he described it as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. He just couldn't understand it, and he couldn't understand them. life is like that. It's a a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And you know that word vanity that occurs uh, some 80 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. One Hebrew scholar uh, translates it as enigma. Enigma, enigma, everything's an enigma. Life is hard to understand. There are things that happen in this world and happen to us that leave us bewildered and frustrated, and we can't make sense of them. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 has to do with those enigmas, those frustrations that we face in life. I think there are six common frustrations that he lists. There may be some more, there may be some less, there may be some overlap between them, but after a long and difficult week of study, I have come up with six. Now, remember what Solomon is doing. He is considering life from two very different perspectives, from the viewpoint of a secularist, from life lived under the sun, and then from the position of the believer, life, if you like, lived above the sun. And although these frustrations are common to both, the believer and the unbeliever, it's only with God in one's life that you can make sense of them and you can get a proper perspective on them. Now, the first frustration that he lists is with secular authorities, what William Tyndale translated in Romans 13 as the powers that be, the government of the day. Look at verses 2 to 6. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Do be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavily on him. Now, of course, the uh, government in Solomon's day was the monarchy, not the kind of monarchy that we have, but an absolute monarchy, where the king had absolute power over his, his citizens, even their very life and death. Now, the king he has in mind is maybe some historical figure or perhaps some uh, contemporary king in a neighboring nation. You'll notice there in verse 3, he says, For he does whatever he pleases. This king can behave in any way that he likes. The king's authority is absolute. If you go down to verse 6, we are told, For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavily upon him. There is a misery inflicted upon the subjects of this king. You get another hint of it in verse 9. When he says, "Man has power over uh, over man to his hurt," and the NIV adds the little word, "There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt." That's not a good translation. It's it's that he has power over another man to his hurt. One Hebrew scholar translates it: "For the oppression of the king is severe upon its victim, his victim." The subjects of this king are suffering because of his wicked and cruel reign. And what Solomon is saying is this, there's not a thing you can do about it. He says in verse 3, be not hasty to go from the king's presence. To leave the king's presence was to rebel against him, to usurp his authority, to be guilty of treason. Don't walk out in a huff says Solomon, because uh, this king rules and rules cruelly. He says in verse 3, do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. The, when you see all the injustices in the world that are precipitated by this despotic rule, don't say a word. Keep your head down. You'll have no influence over him anyway. Uh, Handle the king with kid gloves. Now that's secular thinking. Look after number one. Be pragmatic. Go with the flow. Don't rock the boat. Don't speak out. Don't put your neck over the precipice. Now Solomon isn't commending that kind of thinking to us He's looking at life under the sun and saying in all the frustrations you feel with uh, secular authorities, there is nothing that you can do. You're up against the system. You're a cog in the wheel. You can't change it. So just get on with it. Now, although the New Testament tells us that we are subject to the powers that be, it also tells us that we must obey God rather than man. And there is a time to speak up. There is a time to stand up. There is a time to speak out about the injustices of our secular world. Christians like Luther and Calvin and Cromwell and Wilberforce and Shasbury, and even a deacon in Kettering Baptist Church who was was at the forefront of the abolitionist movement and had a profound effect upon William Wilberforce, William Nibb. A Campaigning for uh, the end of slavery in Jamaica. But so often we feel helpless in the uh, face of bureaucracy. Maybe the Red Army in China, or the Red Tape in the United Kingdom, or the Red Wall in America. We see a, a government who aggressively and actively promotes lgp lgbt agenda we you switch on stephen nolan and you you hear about all the problems with our local government you hear about the problems with the the health service and and you're frustrated because there doesn't seem to be a thing that you can do about it frustration with secular authorities the second frustration he mentions in this chapter is a frustration with human Uh, uncertainties look at verses uh, 7 and 8 for he does not know what is to be for who can tell him how it will be no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of his death there is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it he is saying life is so unpredictable you cannot tell the future You cannot tell what lies around the corner, what a day will bring forth. We're not captains of our own destiny and masters of our own fate. There are things that happen that we can't control. In verse 8, he says, No man has power to retain his spirit, our power over the day of his death. You'll notice the NIV says, no man has power to control the wind. In Hebrew and in Greek, the, the word for uh, wind and for breath and for spirit are all the same. And he say, it seems that Solomon is saying, just as the wind blows where it wants to blow, so the spirit of man departs when it wants to depart. And no one has the power over the day of his death. A pandemic erupts and sweeps uh, thousands into eternity, a, a tsunami hits, a volcano erupts, a, a cancer diagnosis is received, an accident happens. All these things are out of our control. They're beyond our control. No one, he says, is discharged in a time of war. You are maybe making plans for your future, but a time of war comes. And those plans have to be altered because you are conscripted. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it, he says. Wickedness is addictive. It's enslaving. It holds you. And no matter how much you try to break free, uh, it will not loosen its grip. Alcohol, drugs, pornography, sectarianism, it grips and floods the heart. What he is saying is that there are things that we have no control over, um, and that is one of the most frustrating things of life. We have our goals, we make our plans, we have our ambitions, and something happens, and they're turned upside down. We want to do a certain course at university, but we don't get the grades. We have a, a nice career marked out for ourselves, and we don't get the job. We are passed over for promotion. We're made redundant. We plan for retirement. Meticulously setting aside a sum of money for our pension. And you have a black Monday or a black Tuesday or a black Friday. And those profits are, are taken from us. Snatched from us. Slip sliding away. Slip sliding away. The nearer you get your destination. The more you slip side away says Paul Simon. I know a woman. Became a wife. These are the very words she uses to describe her life. She said, a good day and got no rain. She said, a bad day is when I lie in bed and think of what it might have been. Keeps sliding away. Life is full of uncertainties and those uncertainties can lead to frustration. And that's why people have midlife crises. And that's why teenage suicide rates are on the rise. And that's why depression is one of the most uh, commonly uh, treated medical conditions in the Western world. Frustrated with human uncertainties. Frustrated with secular authorities, with human uncertainties. And then frustrated with selective memories. Look at verse, verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried... They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done these things. Now, there is a textual difficult, uh, difference here. Some versions read that they were praised and, and other versions uh, uh, read that they are forgotten. But the same thing applies. Here, are, here is a priest we know he's a priest because he goes in and out of the holy place. But he's not a holy priest. He's a, he's a wicked priest. He's a, he's a rascal. And he's using his position to uh, advance his own cause. But then it comes to his funeral. And at his funeral, people only say nice things about him. His wickedness is forgotten. Or he's praised. You attend a funeral. And very rarely do people tell the truth. You're told what a good man he was, what a nice man he was, what a kind man he was. A vicar recently hit the headlines in England when at a funeral he stood up and said he couldn't think of one positive thing to say about the deceased and that uh, no one would ever miss him. And the family complained to the bishop and the bishop intervened. And the family said, well, we knew it was true, but it wasn't the place to say it. Willie Roll was the pastor of Coleraine a number of years ago. And he stood up at the funeral of the treasure. And he said, now some of you are going to miss this man. He says, I'm not going to miss him. He's the tightest treasure. He was the tightest treasure I ever had to work with. And people were up in arms. In Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, uh, uh, it said, The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often interned with their bones. Well, Solomon's saying the, the exact opposite. Do you remember when Princess Diana died? There was a move to canonize her. Like, she wasn't even a Roman Catholic, but there was a move to canonize her, Saint Diana. And people seemed to forget that she was living in an adulterous relationship, or she was at least having an adulterous affair. You see that with terrorism. Nelson Mandela, Yasser Arafat, uh, Martin McGuinness idolized today, but people forget some of the terrible atrocities that those men were involved in. And all of that can be very frustrating. Frustrations with secular authorities, with human uncertainties, with selective memories, with judicial inconsistencies. Look at verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Maybe again that Solomon is, is um, talking about something that he read in the morning paper, something that was uh, current news. And here's a a man, a a wicked man, and the sentence is passed, but there is a delay in carrying it out, and that leads to frustration in the land. At the beginning of the year, we had Billy McCurry, uh, a pastor in Ormskirk uh, near Liverpool, who you will remember was converted in the May's prison while on a life sentence for getting involved in terrorism. And Billy uh, told me on one occasion his father was shot by, dead by the IRA, and it seemed that his murderers got off on a technicality. And then seeking for justice, he took law into his own hand and, and joined that renegade, evil organization, the UVF. That's what Solomon's speaking about in verse 11. Frustrations with ju- the judicial system. And again, today that's so true. There's an old Spanish proverb which says, laws, like the, "Laws are like the spider's web that catch the flies, while the hawks go free." According to one famous American lawyer, an acquittal doesn't mean that you're innocent; it means that you you beat the rap. Poet Robert Frost defines a jury as twelve persons chosen to decide who has the best lawyer. That's true. People get off on the technicality. You remember the O.J. Simpson trial and uh, and was later convicted in a civil trial, but he got off with that, that cliche, if, if the glove don't fit, you've got to acquit. People not realizing that leather gloves shrink uh, when wet. Technicality. A Christian policeman told me recently that one of the most frustrating things about his work is that he knows somebody is guilty. They know that they're guilty. Everybody knows that they're guilty, but they just can't prove sufficiently that guilt. So here lies frustrations, frustrations with the secular authorities, with human uncertainties, with selective memories, with judicial inconsistencies, and with life's uh, inequities there. Life just seems so unfair. Look at verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of, righteous, uh, of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. This is one of the great mysteries of life. Why is it that good people seem to suffer and bad people seem to prosper? That's what the psalmist asked in Psalm 73. He lists what he had observed, how, how the wicked seem to have it all rosy, and it's the righteous who seem to, to suffer. And he says, surely I have kept my heart in vain. I have kept my, I've washed my hands in innocence. What's the point of following God, following Christ, living for Christ, and uh, living for God, when it's the wicked who prosper and, uh, and it's the, the righteous that seem to suffer all the, the bad times. Wicked people prosper. They're happier and they're healthier. And we have to say that the psalmist has a point. At times it seems that the parcels of retribution and reward have been delivered to the wrong address. The labels have been switched. The retribution has been sent to the righteous and the reward to the wicked. Who is it succeeds in business? The Arthur Daly's of this world with their dodgy deals and their backhanders. Why is it that gangsters can be rich by uh, exploiting pornography and trafficking drugs and even trafficking humans for prostitution? Why is it that they, they, they... Prosper and are rich, and the godly man who is seeking to walk with God and care for his family, he can't make ends meet. Why was it uh, that a, a man in the Balamone Church, when he was a seven year old boy, was, was, his father was conducting an open air in McFinn and he was riding his bicycle back to Coleraine and he was killed by a drunk driver? who knocked him off his bicycle, leaving a, a, a widow with five children and another baby on the way. That just seems so unfair. The misfortunes of good people are not only for a problem for the people who suffer those misfortunes, for, but for, for others who observe them. But life is not fair. There are great inequities in life that we have no explanation for, and that leads to great frustration. So Solomon is looking at the frustrations of life. Frustrations with the secular authorities, with human uncertainties, with selective memories, with judicial inconsistencies, with life's inequities, and lastly, a frustration with divine mysteries in verses 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Solomon in these verses brings God into the picture. He says... I applied my mind to know wisdom, to uh, observe a man's labor, his toil. He, 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 he does a little experiment on a, a workaholic, this man who doesn't sleep day or night. Um, and you would think such a person would be wealthy and prosperous and settled and happy. And then he says in verse 17, then I saw all the work of God. I saw that in this man's life there were patterns that could not be explained, uh, could not be controlled by him, could only be explained by God being at work. That God was in control, that God was working out his plan in this man's life. He says, I saw that, but I couldn't make sense of it. Look at verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out. Couldn't find it out. The work that is done under the sun, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. He just couldn't make sense of it. He he knows that there are patterns to this man's life, that God is at work in this man's life. He came to embrace the doctrine of divine providence But he says, it's a mystery to me. I can't make sense of it. And even non-Christian people like Paul Simon uh, would say that. God only knows. God makes his plan. The information is unavailable to the mortal man. We work our jobs. We collect our pay. Believe we are gliding down the highway when in fact we are slip sliding away. Yes, God is in control. There are patterns in our lives that can only be explained by him. But what he's doing, we can't work out. We can't comprehend. We just don't know. And that's terribly frustrating to us. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you're asking the question, Why me? Why has this happened to me? Why me? What have I ever done to deserve this from you? And we're looking for an answer. We're looking for an explanation. And there is no answer and there is no explanation. It's a, a mystery. These, says Solomon, are the frustrations of life with secular authorities, with human uncertainties, with selective memories, with judicial inconsistencies, with life's inequities, with divine mysteries... And the the question then comes to us, how do we respond to all of that? These frustrations, all of us can testify to them, but how do we explain it? How do we make sense of life's frustrations? Well, Solomon gives us two responses, one of the secularist and the other of the believer. The secularist, that's the person who has a worldly view of life and is living his life under the sun with no reference to God, uh, simply living for the here and now. And in verse 15, you have his response. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Do you see what he's saying? Yeah, all these frustrations are there in life, but just live life. Just just live for the moment. Just get on with it. Just have a party. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's the thinking of the average person in the street. Just live for yourself. Enjoy life. Um, get the most that you can out of life. Enjoy your work. Enjoy your free time. Live for the moment. Do you know what Jesus called such a person who lived like that? He called them a fool. Remember the man who pulled down his barns and built bigger ones? And then he said, I'll take life easy. I'll eat, drink, and be merry. The very same words that are used here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 15. Eat, drink, and be glad. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. He only lived for the moment, for the here and now, and a person like that who lives under the sun only for this life is a fool. Not my definition, but Jesus' definition. And that's what most people do. They look at uh, and consider all the frustrations of life and they say, well, as long as I'm comfortable, as, as long as I'm all right, Jack, I'll just get, I'll get on with it. But it doesn't really answer the problem. It's the philosophy of the ostrich. Bury your head in the sand and hope that the frustrations go away. And that's how most people live their lives. They bury themselves in work, in study, in possessions, in drugs, drink, or sex. And they hope that it all goes away. But Solomon gives us another response there in verses 12 to 13. Look at verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Solomon says, You've got to take the long term view. You've got to think about the consequences for the life to come. He says, Yes, all these frustrations and inconsistencies do exist. Life is an enigma. But I am convinced, he says, that when death comes, it will be better for the righteous. It will be better for the believer. It will be better for the Christian. Because the day will come when the wicked will die also. That's what what he means when it says God will not lengthen their days like a shadow. Shadows get longer as the day proceeds, but the wicked, they die too. They're cut off too. And he says you've got to judge wickedness by its long-term effects. Death for the wicked is not the end. It's not annihilation, it's alienation. It's alienation from God. It's not being snuffed out, it's being separated from God for all eternity. Yes, there are these frustrations, there are these enigmas, there are these perplexities, but that's not the end of the story. There is life after death, and the wicked will not fare well on the day of their death. That's what Solomon is saying. That's what the psalmist is saying. In Psalm 73, just turn back for a moment to Psalm uh, 73, this this wonderful psalm. And he talks uh, about the prosperity of the wicked. He says in verse 3 uh, of Psalm 73, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So he's talking about the prosperity of the wicked, verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But then down to verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Then I discerned their end. So he's struggling with this. Why is it that wicked people receive the the, the blessing and righteous people receive the retribution? He says, all this was overwhelming. My feet almost slipped until I entered the sanctuary and I saw their end. When he began to worship, he got... uh, a proper view on their life and his life. He started to look at life from uh, through the lens of eternity and he saw the eternal consequences of the wicked's activity. Now this is what Solomon is saying here. Yet I know it will be better with those who fear God. I know it will be better with those who fear God, not fear in a carring, a fretful kind of way. Michael Eaton describes the fear of God as as, uh, um, awe and holy caution that arises from the recognition of the greatness of God. That God is great, that God is supreme, that I am nothing before him, that I am a sinner before him and that he is the one who can grant eternal life. Do you remember the dying thief when uh, the other thief was heaping blasphemies upon the Lord Jesus in the middle cross? He turned to his friend and he says, he didn't say, "Do, do you believe in God? Don't you believe in God? He says, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? Here you are standing on the brink of eternity and your future destiny is in the hands of a holy God. Don't you fear God? But that fear led him to faith because he turned to Jesus and he said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And yes, you can bury your head in the sand. You can turn a blind eye to all the frustrations of life. You can be pragmatic. You can engage in wickedness. But Solomon says, I know it will be well with those who fear God, those who have faith in God, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Redeemer. It will be well with them. I'm going to make a prophecy this morning. Hey. I don't believe in extra-biblical revelation, but I'm making a prophecy this morning. And I'm going to say within a hundred years, apart from Isaac maybe, or the little babies that are still in the womb, within a hundred years, everybody here will be dead. You're going to die. And you can live for this life, and you can invest in this life, but unless you fear God, it will not go well with you. You think you're happy. You think you're contented. You can let the world go to hell in a basket and just get on with your little comfy life. But it will not go well with you if you do not fear God and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ let the world deride our pity I will glory in your name fading are the worldlings worldlings pleasures all his boasted pomp and shame solid joys and lasting pleasure none none but Zion's children know I know It will be well with those who fear God. Amen.